Which organ produces the hormone insulin? Welcome to Trivial Context, the only trivia podcast that dares to dig a little deeper. I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> I'm Sean Riley with my co-host. Brooke Riley. I think it is the pancreas? Yeah. Okay. That's what I was going to say. Pancreas. Nice. We know science. Yeah, we do. We each researched today's topic based on one of the six trivia categories randomly chosen last week. As referenced earlier, this week was science and nature. Yeah. And since I answered the question correctly first, I will go first Mm. before I jump in. Not quite science, but science fiction. How was your May 4th, Brooke Fouts? It was good. We were quarantined. Sure were. Because one of us had COVID. That person will remain nameless. My test was negative. (laughs) (laughs) So we watched... The fourth one? Yes, we watched episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yes. I think on the third. Yeah, and then we watched... Gearing up for the fourth, yeah. The second slash fifth, and then... Of Star Wars. The third slash sixth. <laughs> and uh, for the first time ever, I enjoyed it. Yeah, you said something that made my heart melt, where you said, many have tried, but you are the first person that has like shown me Star Wars, and I've been into it. Yeah. I'm not Only like took he- two years of marriage. Yeah. And I'm not, like, huge into Star Wars. Like, there are people that are, like... Real into Real into Star Wars. And I'm not that. I will see every movie. You'll know a lot of things. I do know a lot of things. Good job. I am excited to watch the fourth, fifth, and sixth. Or first, second, third. Yes. Because <laughs> I've already seen the seventh, eighth, nine. <laughs> or the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's true. It's it's we're we're where we're supposed to be now. the The tenth one coming out will be episode ten. Oh yeah. Or uh, I don't know if that's true. Maybe they'll go negative three, negative three, negative two, negative one. <laughs> or they'll go like fifteen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hope not. Hmm. Yeah. All right. To start my topic, Brooke, what is the most dangerous cat in the world? Tiger. No. Huh. Or yes. I will admit that this is a bit of a trick question. Dangerous is probably not the right word. Deadly. Maybe, yeah, deadly. Most efficient, lethal would be ac- be more accurate. I will instead give you a uh, multiple choice. Okay. These are all, it's an African wild cat. Mm-hmm. And these are all of the African wild cats okay. in order of size. The lion, okay. 420 pounds. These are all kind of the upper end of the males. Cheetahs, 160. Leopards, 70. Caracal, 42 pounds. The jungle cat, 35. The serval, 26. The African golden cat, 23. The African wild cat, 14. The sand cat, 6 pounds. Or the black-footed cat at 4 pounds. Before you said all those things, I was like, it's going to be the smallest one. But then what? But then there were so many little ones. Yeah. I'll stick to my original, the, the smallest one. You said the black-footed cat? Mm-hmm. Good job. Yes. That is the most lethal or efficient hunter in all of the cat world. And the second most effective mammalian predator in the world. Wow. Behind the African wild dog. Which I think is unfair because they hunt in packs. Well, that's more efficient. Yep. Uh, so to put this in perspective, the, the black-footed cat, which mm-hmm. I will now refer to as the BFC. Oh, those are almost my old initials. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Four pounds. A 
house cat normally weighs about 8 to 11 pounds. Little. Little, little, little. Everyone at home should look up the black-footed cat, the BFC, to picture what I am talking about. But to put it simply, I think it looks like a tiny, stocky house cat with like a cheetah pattern in its fur. Ooh. Yeah. My original report was going to be on the palace cat in kind of like the Himalayan area, uh, northern India area. We have seen some documentaries. There's a National Geographic yeah. on Disney Plus that we watched. My coworker told me that pretty much everything that's true about the black-footed cat, that is the most effective hunter, blah, blah, blah. He said that that was true about the palace cat. So I was like, oh, I'll do my report on this fun, chunky-looking cat. That was not true. The palace cat is not, uh, as far as we know, that effective of a hunter. I searched and searched for it, but like the statistic just does not exist in anywhere that I could reference. Mm. So, you know, check your sources before you tell your coworkers cool facts about dumb cats. <laughs> but... Where I lost love for the palace cat, oh, I gained no. love for the BFC. Nice. I'm excited to see a picture. Yes. Picture. Oh, yeah. That's what I was picturing. <laughs> it's so cute. Yeah. The BFC gets its name from the pad of its feet being black, you know, black-footed cat, mm-hmm. instead of the usual pink. From bigcatrescue.org. Black-footed cats are nocturnal inhabitants of the arid lands of southern Africa, namely Nambia, Zimbabwe, Angola, and South Africa, and are typically associated with open, sandy, grassy habitats with sparse scrub and tree cover. Uh, They were native to Botswana as well, but none have been reported in a very long time. During the day, they live in abandoned burrows of badgers or porcupines or in holes in termite mounds. If a black-footed cat is cornered, they can be quite fierce. Because of that behavior, they are sometimes called Mierschutier. I have no idea if that is pronounced correctly. <laughs> I put a little French spin on it. I could be way off there. But Mierschutier means anthill tigers. Mm. Yeah. They're really cute. Yeah, I think everybody should look up a like a two-minute video from the BBC about the black-footed cat, and it gives you everything you ever need to know about them. Their calls are louder than those of other cats of their size. Presumably to allow them to call over relatively large distances. However, when close to each other, they use quieter purrs or gurgles. If they feel threatened, they will hiss and even growl. Are and you... their hiss sounds like a cute little... Mm. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> As for its diet, it eats just about anything smaller than it. Gerbils, birds, insects, arachnids, reptiles. And even though the Cape Hare is larger than the BFC, it can take it down. Oh. Yeah. What is that? Hair. Oh, hair. Hair, yeah. The cape hair. Cape hair, okay. I assume the African cape. Are you a cat person or a dog person? Dog person. Yeah. But I still like cats. They're fine. Yeah, you're a both. I'm, you're, just a, you're I'm both an animal le- lover. You're both leaning towards the dogs. Yeah, I'd say heavy leaning, but I'll say it's easier to have a cat. Yeah, especially uh, in an apartment. In an apartment, yes, in a city. Mm, which is our current situation. Yeah. We're busy. Cats are self-entertaining. <laughs> I love animals, but I don't need to live with them. Too so I'm neither a dog or a cat person. Though, probably more a dog person. If you twisted my arm or the person I was married to made it part of their wedding vows or whatever. <laughs> From discoverwildlife.com, they make a hunting attempt every 30 minutes. Wow. And are successful 60% of the time. Making them one of the world's most efficient predators. 
They eat a wide variety of prey and make 10 to 14 kills every night. Jesus. For context, some natural context, tigers are successful in about 5% of their hunting efforts. Wow. I already touched a little on this, but seemingly, as is the way of most predators, they are losing in their population numbers. Though not much is known about them in the wild, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, has listed the BFC, a lot of acronyms, as vulnerable. In South Africa and Botswana, they are protected by legislation, though for Botswana, I think it might be a bit late. In captivity, there are 21 recorded, all of which are in the U.S., is one in the St. Louis Zoo? Uh, I don't know. I didn't look where they were. Oh, we should look that up. Yeah. Oh, so now I'm allowed to look things up. <laughs> I just don't want you to look up cat shelter cats right now. That's all. <laughs> St. Louis Zoo does have a pretty big, like, cat enclosure, I would say. Yeah, I don't think we've ever really seen any, though. Yeah, we that's true. We saw that tiger that one time because it was late, mm-hmm. and it was just... Oh, yeah, just lying down. Lying down. No BFC. Okay, well, this sucks about big cats, but not their little cats. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't think there's one in St. Louis. Sorry, continue. Now, where did the BFC come from? Uh, I find this stuff, like, phonology and all that stuff, very interesting. Uh, but it's not for everyone, so here's your cue to jump forward. The felidae, as in, like, feline, felidae, species, the common ancestor for all cats began around 14 to 8 million years ago in Asia. From there, the Felinae and the Pantheronae split. The latter, the Pantheronae, gave us the big cats, lions, tigers, leopards, and so on. Felinae gave us the smaller cats, which includes house cats. It is believed the jungle cat was the first to become distinct, followed closely by the BCF, then the sand, and so many more following. So yeah, I decided to do my report on <laughs> the palace cat. The palace cat, but then quickly scrambled for something else and found this amazing little dude, yeah. who I like quickly went up in rank towards the top of. Stop looking at cats, Brooke. I'm not. Quickly rose up to <laughs> a much higher spot in my favorite animal list. <laughs> yeah. I I think he's cool. I think he's cute, and he's he's the best cat. Yeah, he's the most efficient. Also, he looks so out of place. Yeah. Like this, like this really intense nighttime African, like, desert mm-hmm. shot. And this little tiny cat. Yeah, kind of has a bit of a waddle. Like a corgi-esque <laughs> waddle to him. Yeah. <laughs> I like him. So, everybody, donate to cons- conservation. Doesn't have to be for the BFC. Just, you know, all animals are dying, so... All right, that's my report. Thank you so much. Your turn. That was good. Thanks. So this week, I really struggled (coughs) coming up with this topic because while I love science and nature, I really love nature and science is just kind of whatever. But because I did nature last time, I wanted to switch it up. So basically, this is a history lesson. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. I had a really, really hard time, like, figuring out what I wanted to do my topic on, so I went, I looked up some science and nature trivia, and I found this topic, and it was actually really interesting. Good. That's what we want. Yeah. All right. My question is, the French inventor Joseph Marie Jacquard revolutionized the textile industry 
when he developed a programmable version of what type of machine in 1804? Ooh, I was gonna say printing press, but that's much earlier. Mm-hmm. 1804, would it be the cotton gin? I'm gonna say his name again. I don't know if that will help you. Okay, but... I was I was looking at something else when, while you were saying your question. I literally just heard 1804. Okay, <laughs> well that's you know, Joseph Marie Jacquard. He made the jacket. You're in the ballpark. Really? Denim. No. Okay, I don't know. The loom. A programmable loom, which is how you make fabric. Jacquard is a type of fabric. Oh, yeah, okay. Which is funny. I watched Project Runway. It was invented way before. Like, he did not invent Jacquard fabric, but, like, that fabric has his name. Because of his... Is that nominative determinism, or did they change the name? No, they changed the name. Like, Ah. it was just... The, what it is, is instead of having, like, a design, like, placed or printed on the fabric, it's, like, woven directly into the fabric. Oh, and that's, like, the coolest kind, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. But Whoa. that already existed. It just was made easier to produce because of him. Yeah. And then they named it after him, which is fine, but... Interesting. Now... Is that, like, more impressive than silk? Or is silk what they make jacquard out of? Like, yeah, like... Am I, am I talking about apples and oranges here? No, I mean, you can do it with silk. Okay. You can do it with anything, I'm pretty sure. Any type of, like, thread. But let's talk a little bit about the loom. Please. So, evidence of looms can still be found that date all the way back from the 5th millennium BC. So, they old. Uh, which makes sense, because... Yeah, I mean... We've always kind of worn clothes. It's either animal skins or you're nude. Yeah. Until the loom. Essentially, there's bars fixed to place to form a frame and hold two sets of parallel threads that alternate each other. This pretty much was the same for thousands and thousands of years until about medieval times, where there were advances in both Asia and Europe. Which I think is interesting that about the same time, two countries that don't really interact with each other make similar... Technological steps forward? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I am really fascinated by convergent evolution, convergent, you know, technological leaps. Mm-hmm. I think that is so interesting. Yeah, me too. Um, so one of the most important of these improvements was the introduction of what is called the heddle, which is a movable rod that is served to raise the upper sheet of warp. And then in later looms, the heddle became a cord or wire, and then several could be used simultaneously. Then the draw loom, which was probably invented in Asia for silk weaving specifically, made it more possible to to do intricate little patterns, making like the fabric a lot more fancy. But that also required more work, and the person who did that, they were usually like young boys, mm. because they could could do the work, and that person was called a draw boy. Now it took several hours. To produce one yard of fabric. Rough. Yeah. It's like crocheting. My mom is a serial crocheter. Like, she'll whip out a blanket for every kid. So quickly. Well, I mean, over the course of a few months. And she's going 100 miles a minute mm-hmm. every day with that stuff. So I can imagine having to supply a village with this stuff. Yeah. Basically, you people did this out of their home. It wasn't, like, mass-produced because it took so long. Now, fast forward to... The 1780s, where 
Edmund Cartwright, a British clergyman, saw Sir Richard Arkwright's... Oh, so similar. Is that right? Hold on. Yeah, all right. A lot of rights back in uh, the, the Britain. <laughs> so Edmund saw Sir Richard Arkwright's cotton spinning mills, and he realized that he could kind of use that same idea to patent a power loom in 1785. And while it helped lower the cost of manufacturing fabric, he didn't really make a lot of money for it. But in 1809, he was awarded 10,000 pounds from the House of Commons for his invention because Manchester becomes the leader in fabric production in the world. And this is also right when the Industrial Revolution is taking off. Yeah, yeah. Just some fun facts. His other inventions included a cordelier, which is a machine for making rope, and a steam engine that uses alcohol instead of water. Oh, so he's how little, did that work out? Um, I don't know. His most popular was the power loom. <laughs> Good. <laughs> would you be able to get drunk off like the fumes? Or, or would it be burned away? I don't know. I don't, I don't drink alcohol. Yeah, me either. I don't use steam engines either, so <laughs> both of those sciences are lost on me. We'll never know. So right at the beginning of the invention of the power loom, I mentioned that until that point, there was somebody called a draw boy, right? Yeah. So these are small, small guys because they're able to climb to the top of the loom in order to like do all the work. And they typically spent anywhere from six to eight hours a day working. And this is like small children. Rough. And they're lifting about 30 pounds of like weaving stuff. <laughs> working then is not what it is today. And a lot of the boys became crippled because of all of this work they did so young. Jeez. So this is where our guy, Joseph Jacquard, comes in. He He's a draw boy, and he realizes this is, this is not the way. And when power looms come into play, he's like, this is awesome, this is a step in the dr- right direction, but I can make it better. This is from the Britannica website. They were already being widely used to create simple pattern fabrics, but brocades still required an artist's touch since their designs were far more complex. So these are like much more ornate designs. Um, In order to create such a pattern, there would need to be a way to program the machine to change its weave depending on which line of the pattern was being created. Jacquard created a simple but ingenious solution using stiff punch cards similar to the reels still seen in player pianos and mechanical music boxes. In 1801, his initial concept won him the attention of Napoleon himself. He was taken to Paris and commissioned to perfect this idea, and in 1804, the final version was released, and it became the world's first programmable machine. It later influenced Charles Babbage, who's credited with creating the world's first computer, and... Many many other of the punch card things, like, you have modern applications, and it's thought to be the origin of the binary code system. Oh, wow. And is this similar to the, like, Hedy Lamarr different radio signal situation? No, like, he just realized that he could kind of, like, program this machine. She came up with this patent that was ignored by the Navy or something. I'm fuzzy on the details that used 
the technology behind how pianos could play. Oh, so you're saying automatically songs. because of this invention, she was able to make her invention. She which took helped, that on, yeah. Which helped with like war. Torpedo navigation or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. There you go. I mean, thanks, Power Loom Man. Jacquard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of cool that like it was invented for the loom. And then that concept can be applied so many places across the board. Oh, yeah. To I mean, change like... so much. All right. So to put this in perspective, in 1803, there were 2,400 power looms operating. Could you say to put this into context? <clears throat> to put this into context, wink, wink. In 1803, there were 2,400 power looms operating in the world slash country. At this point, it's only in England. Um, in 1857, so a little over 50 years later, there's 250,000 power looms in factories. It's so popular and so... So was that 100 times more? Yeah. A little more than 100 times more. That's a lot. Yeah. It was so integral to their economy that England actually passed laws prohibiting selling these power looms to other countries. And oh, because... Then other countries could start... they lose pro- their edge. Mm-hmm. And they also made it illegal for the workers in the factories to immigrate to other countries. Wow. Yeah. So right at the beginning of the invention of the power loom, in 1811, a man named Francis Lowell took a tour of the factory, and he wasn't allowed to, well, pictures didn't exist, but he wasn't allowed to take any drawings or anything like that. But he examined the machines and went home, contacted a man named Paul Moody, and based off of memory, in 1840, they make their own power looms. Wow. Uh, are they intricate, these machines? Or is it just like a big wheel? And they're like, oh, of course. Do you know what a loom looks like? No, by my question, I thought that would be obvious. <laughs> Look at you knowing the hockeys for new tab. Do you know how many new tabs I create? That's true. Minute? I'm looking at eight here right now. Oh, and I have... Oh my goodness. When we were dating everybody, uh, we were both in school, and I would wince every time I looked at Brooke's computer and saw 30, 40 tabs on a single browser. That's how I work. Can't stop, won't stop. Okay, this is a loom. Yep, looks like the inside of a clock. Yeah, so this bar, you like smush down, and that like presses the threads together and creates the fabric and it's like a weave right yeah like a big old basket mm-hmm. we're in a bunch of baskets so uh you know there's a lot of gears and such so it's pretty impressive that he i mean he stole an idea but i mean that's impressive in its own way <laughs> no nah, i'm just kidding plagiarism is horrible and never do it yeah but other places need to make fabric as well yeah um, it's like the seat belt right the guy that invented the seat belt's like this is no patent everyone can use it mm-hmm I feel like this is an important enough thing that everybody has to do. Maybe Britain should have been like, hey, this is how you make a power loom. Died at the age of 42 suddenly of pneumonia. But in 1826, a town in Massachusetts is named Lowell in honor of him. And it becomes the new head of manufacturing in the U.S. In fact, it is like the industrial boom that America is looking for. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also stolen from England, huh? <laughs> yep. 
It's the cradle of the Industrial Revolution and, the, yeah, the center of, the of, fa- of factory work in America. Yeah. He was the first to get the raw cotton that was collected by slaves in the South. It was then shipped up north, processed, and then woven all under one roof. And he was the first to kind of do that. He centralized all the processes. Then, they because it was becoming so popular and work was exploding, they needed workers to come. So they advertised for young single women for anywhere from the ages of 15 to 30, although sometimes they were young as 7 or 8, to come and work in these cities. So these girls who were born and raised in small villages and farms are given the offer to leave their family, go hang out with girls their age, earn some money, and become a little bit financially independent. And the girls came. Were they like, was it good, at least for the time? We'll get into that. Okay. Uh, Two-thirds of workers were women, and it just let, like, cities explode. Yeah, and that never, like, up until this point, like, did that ever happen? I don't think it did. No, yeah, like, women worked in the house. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, they're they're one of the first industries to really allow women to work. Yeah, and it might might be a rough first step, but it's a first step nonetheless, which is cool. They had to work 12 to 14 hour days. They all lived in boarding houses that were owned by the factory themselves. So they had to live... It might be a very rough first step. <laughs> yeah. They had to live usually like four girls to a room, two girls to a bed. And then the boarding house ex- themselves would usually have about eight units. And there'd be 20 to 40 women living in each unit. There'd be like a house mom or couple that ran it and would cook them three meals a day, kind of clean and stuff. But Three yeah. meals a day for 40 women. Yeah, that's a Up lot to. of work. That's yeah, a, yeah that's, that's a lot. So yeah, they had to work 12 to 14 hour days and then half day Saturday. And then on Sunday they got off, but they had to go to church. <laughs> yeah, they had strict curfews they had to abide by. It not, was very... Yeah. Not a good time to live. Yeah, very controlled. Their life was run completely... Their life was the factory. Mm-hmm. This is also the some of the beginning of some work reforms. Good. So, female workers led strikes twice during the 1830s. And in the 1840s, female labor reformers banded together to promote the 10-hour day, which failed... But they got an 11-hour day. Oh, good. Yeah. It was an uphill battle because they would just get fired and they'd get... Replaced. Hundreds of other girls who want who want yeah. the opportunity. But yeah, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like, who would have thought that the loom was so connected to so many little parts of history? Led to the industrialization of America. Yeah. And like, binary code. <laughs> like, and binary code and the internet and everything. <laughs> Very, very cool. Yeah, all, all in one thing. So, you know, this is obviously, it, again, it kind of turned into a history thing, but it's of an invention, no, I, which you is know, science. <laughs> there's no complaints on skewing the categories a little bit. I literally almost did Star Wars this week. <laughs> I was like, it's science fiction. Right? So Those girls are called the Mill Girls. Mill Girls. Mill Girls. So that's my report. 
Got some power looms and some powerful predators. Ooh. Thank you all so much for listening. We have to roll a die for next week. Are you looking at cats again? Yeah. We have like two seconds left. I just got back on the page. Okay. That's all I'm doing. That was a bad roll, but... It's a four. Should I roll again? No. Okay. It is arts and literature. All right. I have no idea what I'm going to do for art and literature. I feel like we just did that. Nope. Was that the second one we did? No, it was the third. No, it was the one we just did. It was the sixth one we did. You're thinking of entertainment. No, art and literature. I did Georgia O'Keeffe. No, that was history. You did Edvard Munch. For art and literature. For art and literature. I did. Yeah, which was last week. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, if you guys want to subscribe and tell a friend, that would be awesome. And if you would like to suggest our next topic or have a question, please email us at trivialconpod, C-O-N-P-O-D, at gmail.com. We don't know what we're going to do, so next week should be fun. Okay, thank you again, and goodbye. Goodbye.